This is episode 139 of The Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and I'm delighted that you're joining me today. If we were to play the Which Concepts Don't Go Together game, creativity and grief would be contenders. And yet, creativity and grief are very much related. Kath Duncan and Kara Jones join me today to jam about how grief and creativity are related and why it's so important for you to do your grief and creativity your way. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Alrighty, Creative Giants, I am pumped to introduce you to Kath Duncan and Kara Jones. Let's start with Kath first. Kath Duncan has a master's in clinical social work with a background in child protection, trauma debriefing, and counseling for chronic stress, anxiety, and depression. Kath helps bereaved people to live wholeheartedly after loss at rememberingforgood.com and co-curates an educational website about the option to bring stillborn and deceased babies home at whenyourbabydies.com. Kath is the author of the Remembering for Good Grief workbook, Together with Kara, she is a founder of thecreativegriefstudio.com, where they're training social workers, clergy, therapists, hospice workers, funeral directors, nurses, and life coaches in a grief support approach that utilizes shame resilience research, conversational creativity, and heart making. Now on to Kara. Kara L.C. Jones is mother to three dead sons, a living son and daughter, and four amazing grandchildren. She is a Carnegie Mellon graduate and certified as both Appreciative Inquiry slash Whole Systems Coach, with emphasis on the hero's journey as a key model, and as a Reiki master teacher. She is the author of the books Mrs. Duck and Woman, 1,000 Permissions Granted, and a contributor to others such as They Were Stillborn and Living with Grief. She is co-founder of both Coda Press and the Creative Grief Studio. Kath, Kara, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Creative Giant Show. And it's one of those things to where um, we mix a lot of different content on the show. You know, we, we see the, the creative joys, we see, you know, the creative struggles, and we also try to weave in the emotional journey as well, because I think that's the conversation that, that we have going on individually, that we're not... Um, talking about nearly as much because, you know, we're talking about grief today. And it's not one of those things where we wake up in the morning. Well, a lot of people don't wake up in the morning. It's like, like, I want to talk and hear about grief. And yet, I think most of us have little G grief or big G grief in our life, right? And so it's important to give that a room for conversation. So thanks so much um, for showing up and and, um, having this conversation. Sure, Thanks so much for inviting us. <laughs> All righty, just so that we can track voices, um, I'm just going to have you tell a little mini narrative, um, and I'm going to start on Kath. Like, Kath, I know a lot about your journey and how you got from um, from your previous work to um, grief work, largely speaking. But can you give us the the quick um, the quick story about that? Um, yeah, you know, I suppose. 
um, how most people normally get into doing grief and loss support because um, it's, <laughs> I think for people who haven't experienced grief and loss, it, um, it doesn't sound like exciting terrain. So much like many people, other people who got into grief and loss, loss support, I made my way there um, through my own experiences of grief and loss. In fact, Charlie, I sat at your retreat with <laughs> you and Pam back in uh, 2010 and we were looking at uh, vision and what do we, you know, what's our work purpose? And I don't know if you remember how frustrated I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was sitting there doing this work in uh, uh, career change and um, you know, broader personal development, and I just knew it wasn't the thing. And I was so like, I, the thing is waiting to be done, and I need to, and and I could not articulate what it was. And you know, I just didn't know that no paper exercise was going to get me there because I hadn't yet had some of the experiences in my life that would change me and. Um, teach me what was going to become important to me in my work. And, you know, once I'd had those experiences of, of loss, um, it, it was really the only thing I could do was to shape my, my work around this. It was so obvious. And, um, <laughs> of course, all those paper exercises helped as well at that point. <laughs> but, you know, I needed to have had certain key um, life experiences. Yeah, I mean, you had to start from what was true for you. Right. And, yes. and what was in your face. Yeah. And sometimes that's the best way to start your work is what's true for you and what's in your face and, you know, going from yeah. there. Yes. And experiences of um, uh, uh, try, trying to seek out something and um, not finding what you need. Uh, it's through those kinds of experiences that you start to realize, wow, um, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be other people who need similar. Um, and then beginning to um, discover how you can um, uh, uh, put together what you need becomes something that you can offer other people. Absolutely. Um, mm. So, Karen, share your journey with us a little bit so we, where we see where you're coming from. Yeah, I, I, you know, I found it really interesting um, when we were talking about, um, you know, how do, how do grief and creativity even go together? Like, those don't seem like there's a match at all. And what's interesting for me is that, you know, I was an artist and a writer prior to the grief experiences that really slammed our family. And so for me, those connections and and the work that came afterwards, it it was really an organic experience. Um, So, you know, the day after our, 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 we had a son who was full-term pregnancy was supposedly perfectly healthy and he died at birth. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, not the way it was supposed to go. And so the day after he was cremated, I found myself laying in bed. It was late in the morning. And um, I was thinking to myself, wow, I'm really going to have to create reasons to get out of bed. I I could really just be done with this life. Just, you know, burn it to the ground, stay here forever. And a couple of things happened. One, my body went, hello, you drank, woman, you drank a lot of water this morning. (laughs) You're going to have some body stuff to attend to. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Even when I am not able to intellectually come up with something, this in-body, still alive, even in the face of grief, is saying, you're going to have to do something. (laughs) Um, And then the other thing was this metaphor of, you know, if you have this experience as an artist or a writer, you get to a certain layer in a canvas or you get to a certain place with a manuscript and you just hate it. You just want to burn it to the ground and throw it out and pretend you never did any bit of it. And there was a, a metaphor in that for grief. I really felt 
grief had brought me to this place where everything was horrible. I just wanted to burn it to the ground. But with the canvases, as an artist in my practice, I would set that canvas across the room for myself and I would turn it upside down and I would stand on my head and I would, you know, look at it sideways. And, and so there was something in that practice, that creativity practice that just, it made sense to me, like they connected. It, it, it wasn't a leap um, for how being more creative in the approach to the grief stuff that was slamming me made sense. Um, and so it was really, it was personal. It was really personal. And that eventually translated into connections with other people. And yeah, I kept the, the <laughs> doing the paper exercises and the things that make it all go, oh, oh, okay, this is what I'm doing now. I get it. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, you know, as I was thinking about this particular conversation, it reminded me of a um, conversation that Liz Gilbert has in Big Magic. Um, about um, she's experienced that we're either creating something or we're destroying something, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. we can, and so, I mean, in our conversation, especially if we're talking about loss and death and things like that, it's like you can choose to destroy yourself and or die, or you can choose to create. And, you know, as I started thinking about that, I also started thinking about the long sort of um, history of this popping up through both Eastern and Western culture, right? So you've got in um, Hinduism, you've got the um, swords to plowshares sort of thing, right? Converting loss and death and pain and suffering into creativity. And so this goes actually really far back. We normally, like, you know, we were talking before the show, like, when we took two words that don't go together, if we were playing that game, which two words don't go together? We might not think creativity and grief, right? <laughs> and yet, in reality, yeah. they often do ride along together. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. Angela was, um, you know, I've been talking to Angela about this in different ways too, because um, she actually gets really creative around grief and loss. And so it creates mm-hmm. this tension mm-hmm. because much like any other creative catalyst, especially ones that may, you may not want, right? Um, it's not, what, what does one do when to get creative, right? There has to be some loss or grief on the, on the front side of it. And so that, that's sort of their journey. But yeah, it's, it's those things that come together. And I'm wondering, you've done way more work with this. So I was, I was just looking at the historical trends there, but what is it about grief and creativity that, that they do go together in that way? I think it's a continuum thing. I mean, I, you know, even that, the idea that we're either destroying or creating, I think those are the ends of a spectrum, you know? And so I think um, there's a lot of stuff happening in between. Um, and so grief and creativity. And I saw this, you know, personally, but then I saw it as I was facilitating support groups and and then working with other helping professionals. It's not so much this binary state of doing one or the other. There's this path in between the two. And so I think grief and creativity have this interesting partnership where there's a space there for expressing uh, all those different places in between the binaries where you are. (laughs) <laughs> and we're exploring like there's a partnership there that I think um even if we don't intellectually you know we're not intellectually saying that it, right at the start of grief um I think our 
our physicalness, our spiritual, our intuitive, our <laughs> artistic, I think it gets it. It, it. it understands there's something happening in a partnership there and in a spectrum of um, emotion being motion, you know, the, 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 you know, looking at the history of the word emotion, it being that full range of motion, exercising that for ourselves. I'm going to suggest that um, we can't have grieving without creativity. I mean, I, I, I hear what uh, Kara is saying that, that um, you know, grief exists on a continuum and so does creativity. Um, our, there are lots of ways that people have tried to define grief in the same way that there are lots of ways that people have tried to define love. Um, but if you're going to offer a class that teaches people how to um, offer grief support, then you probably need to have some kind of definition about like, what is this grief thing that we're looking at? And so our, our attempt at a definition is that um, grieving is a social and creative meaning-making process. So, um, you know, we're, we're all functioning in life every day. We're making meaning all the time. We have um, experiences that um, you could call it data or information, experiences, whatever. And we have to somehow string it together in stories that help us to make sense of like what's going on here and therefore how do I respond and who am I and, um, and, and what's my experience of life and all those kinds of things. And, you know, in the, the grief literature, they call it the assumptive world. And then um, so, so we get this sense of coherence, a sense of something like security out of having assumptions that we feel we can rely on um, about what we think things mean um, and who we think we are. And then a, a great loss happens and it shatters that assumptive world. And um, the way Karen and I see it is that um, grieving is kind of this process of looking at these shattered assumptions and meanings or stories, whatever words you want to use for it, and um, and we're having to do a, a much more of a deliberate review of those assumptions and meanings um, uh, than we normally do for the mundane things in life. And thank goodness we don't normally have to do such a <laughs> deliberate review in everyday life. But, the, but that's also part of what grief feels like. It just feels like, oh, my gosh, everything is so slow because everything is this deliberate review of, of priorities. And so, so that reviewing of, of, of um, meanings and then also trying to, now you have to make meaning in a different way. You can't just remember old meanings because it can't go back to how things were. Something or someone really important is missing um, from that meaning-making network that was giving your life coherence um, and something more special than a sense of coherence, whether you call it um, you know, a reason for living, uh, uh, you know, um, love, um, all, the, all the things that might be important to you could be linked um, in with um, whoever or whatever was lost. And, and now you have to try and, and figure out new meanings. What does life mean now? Who am I now? How do I live now? How do I go on? Like Kara said, even small little meanings like why do I get out of bed why should I? <laughs> should I really? Um, to bigger meanings, the normal existential stuff that, um, you know, many people struggle with, even if loss and grief is, has not happened to them in a significant way yet. Um, all of that's up for grabs. <laughs> um, and all of that, I mean, we just see meaning making as a creative process. It's not a formula. It's not a, here's the procedure, uh, five steps to 
having meaning in your life or um, making sense of who you are or um, here's the answer. Um, I know some people have <laughs> posited 42, but, you know, there's, <laughs> there are a lot more possibilities. <laughs> um, and so, like, uh, um, if there are many ways to creating meaning and many potentially satisfying, sustaining um, meanings that we could create out of our life experiences, well, then it's an art and it's a creative process. It's not a one-way there, um, linear kind of um, procedure. Um, and as Kara has, has also said, it's much more, um, uh, it's not just an analytic thing. You know, our hearts are involved, our bodies are involved, our spirits are involved, um, our environments, our, our social worlds are involved. Um, and, and so there's many moving parts in that meaning-making. Um, and so it's an, it's, it's an immensely um, creative process. I, I don't see how we can not use creativity. And so in this, you can hear that there's a much more expanded definition of, of creativity. And, and, you know, maybe Kara would like to speak to that because I'm speaking a lot. <laughs> Kara, do you want to jump in on that? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think just um, the, the definition of creativity and grief really, I mean, expanded for me again, personally, and then that translated to what I was doing professionally, once I started facilitating support groups. And, and then once Kath and I threw our hats in together to do this continuing education through the Creative Grief Studio. And it, it was, you know, I, I could see that that moment um, of the major uh, grief experience um, there was a there was a definition of grief around that, but there were subsequent things that were happening for people. Um, it, it, in our own family, my husband um, found his workplace was pretty hostile to what had happened to us. So the consequences of that, in terms of relationships to people, you know, how what is the meaning of making in your work? Um, what is the financial stability? What is the housing security? Right. So the, the definition of grief kept expanding for me. Um, you know, as I saw that personally, but then again, in support groups, seeing it in family after family after family, um, and seeing, um, the, how every person in the family was using creativity in a different way. And, you know, in some cases I would find these situations where there were these models, these ideas that, well, if you did these three things, or um, if you did this particular process, it ended with this kind of result. It, it didn't fit for everybody. For some people, it, it helped them make sense. It helped them find something to be more coherent, but creatively for other people, it really didn't work. And sometimes that fell along age lines, you know, for some things that work for adults don't work for children. Um, sometimes it fell across gender lines. Some things that worked for women didn't work for men. But I also did a you know a lot of different scenarios with same sex uh, families where grief happened, and it fell more around uh, role lines instead of grief uh, gender lines. Something that I've seen come up in a lot of conversations with people about grief and loss is. Um, I'll hear people say, well, I lost this thing, but it doesn't seem like something that's mm. that I should be grieving about. Like the tree in my front yard, like mm. fell down in the storm and I've been super sad about it. Um, and I can't talk to anyone about it. Cause when I'm like sad about the tree in my front yard, they're like, well, nobody died. Like you wouldn't, you know? And so there's this judgment. Mm. Um, and I experienced this a lot when, um, when I was helping Live Your Legend transition after Scott Dinsmore tragically passed, a lot of people mm -hmm. had 
um, some grief around that loss, but it was like mm-hmm. this dude on the internet that they didn't know. And they're like, but I, I, it's weird, right? I can't talk to my friends about missing a dude that I've just seen in emails, but I'm really sad about it. Right. And so, um, I'm wondering if you can both talk about, um, about that thing. And if you've seen that in your work as well. Uh, sure. Um, so, you know, something we talk about in our, in our class is actually the, the myth of the hierarchy of loss. That's, you know, something that, that we've actually named and called out, um, so when we're making our meaning of our loss experiences during, you know, all that happens after that loss, we are um, considering, often without knowing, um, a whole bunch of socio-cultural ideas about grief and loss. And um, and we're, we're using that in our meaning making to try to like make sense of what happened here? How bad is it? How am I supposed to respond? How am I responding in relation to how other people think I'm supposed to respond? Um, am I getting like validation from other people? Are they thinking I'm crazy? Am I normal? I mean, you'd be surprised how many times that, that sentence, am I normal or, or am I crazy? Is this crazy? Like that's a, that's a, a really common sentence that people utter in the context of grief support sessions. Um, and, and so, so yeah, the, the myth of the hierarchy of loss is a really prevalent um, sociocultural rule around grief and loss. And, and, you know, it, it, there are different ideas about what that hierarchy is. Um, but, you know, it's basically a set of ideas that these kinds of losses are more um, important, um, more likely to, uh, they're, they're bigger losses. And, um, uh, and these are the kinds of losses we want to talk about. And these are the kinds we don't want to talk about because, you know, we don't want to talk about people who die at war. We don't want to talk about, you know, homeless people dying. Um, you know, there, there, there's a there's a range of kinds of losses that society just doesn't want to talk about. Babies dying, um, and then there's losses that um, you know uh, society sort of stigmatizes um, and um, has the need to sh- blame and shame people around, like um, murder and HIV/AIDS and lung cancer and substance abuse and um, abortion. Um, assisted dying, uh, you know, there are all sorts of um, sociocultural ideas and politics that enter into people's experiences of, of making meaning of those kinds of losses and, and which then slot people in some place on the hierarchy of loss. And that place that people think they are um, put into on the hierarchy of loss, whether they put themselves there or feel other people are putting their, them there, you know, that, that sort of is related to how much they feel they're allowed to grieve and how they feel they're allowed to express that grief that, and for how long, of course, as well. Um, so there's sort of a whole intricate network of grief rules <laughs> that um, sit with that. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that I think is quite unique about what we teach in our class is the relationship between um, uh, grieving and shame. And so, you know, because we view grieving as the meaning-making process, we, we have really tried to understand what is it that um, can get in the way of meaning-making and um, lead us into meanings that are um, painful, that, that, that keep the pain going or grow the pain. Um, and, and something that the research certainly points to is shame. 
And and shame, the definition of shame that we use is from Dr. Brené Brown, who a lot of people know these days, thanks to her wonderful um, ways of getting her work out into the world. And um, and she defines uh, shame as, um, as the sense that we're somehow faulty and therefore unworthy of belonging. Faulty and therefore unworthy of belonging. So if someone's making meaning... You know, try to imagine now they're making meaning of like, who am I now since this last? What is, what do I, what does this mean for my relationship with the person who died? What's the hope for my future? And we, we're asking all those questions. And now the idea that we're faulty and unworthy of belonging is starting to get woven into some of the potential answers that we are considering for our new meanings. And, um, and we start to basically weave in a deep sense of, of, of shame, um, it's really hard to hold hope, <laughs> um, you know, for your life, for your future, and, um, and a sense of agency and, like, who you are um, like, and, a, and a will to live, you know. Um, if, if shame's voice becomes very loud in making those kinds of claims. Um, and so where this relates to the myth of the hierarchy of loss is that, um, you know, if you're interested in, in um, uh, the, the troublesome effects that shame can have, well, then we need to know, well, where does shame come from? What supports shame? What grows shame? And, um, uh, again, this is, this is um, when we look to the research, and, um, and Brene Brown is also someone who's done a lot of um, talking about this, one of the key things that sustains shame and, and brings it into our lives is sociocultural expectations, in particular those that don't fit with us. And so, so we sit in a, in a world, you know, I'm going to speak of the modern Western world because that's the one that Kara and I have experiences of, and that's the one our students come from, and um, I'm sure most of your audience is a part of that. And, yep. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we, we often have very limited um, ideas about what's normal and what's preferred. Um, I think the modern Western world is pretty obsessed with, like, limiting that idea of normal and <laughs> preferred. And, and so a lot of people have experiences that sit outside of normal and preferred. And, um, and then, you know, so... There's that in general, but there's that that experience of okay, I'm I'm experiencing grief. I'm trying to make sense of it all, and my experience is not fitting with what my modern Western world is telling me is normal and preferred. Like, and and how do I make sense of that? I then have another thing to make meaning of, and you know, one of the options is to make the meaning that well, then I obviously am somehow faulty in some way, or don't belong in some way. And what is that? That's shame, mm-hmm. faulty and therefore unworthy of belonging. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because when I was talking to Kristen Mikoff in episode 58, um, Kristen has written about the experience um, of losing her husband um, early and then um, how does, you know, how do widows cope with, with losing their husbands? And so um, she commented that, you know, the thing about that is it's not just that you lost your husband right um, which has a whole range of of things that we don't like to talk about the loss of income the loss of partnership like all of those types of things not just your romantic partnership but then you get this grief on top of it and then you get other people's grief on top of that right and then 
you know, perhaps you get shame following that. And it's like the hits keep coming, right? Um, the hits keep coming. And it's like, I can't just process the loss. I've got to process all this other stuff too. And, and that makes it really challenging. And the other thing that I wanted to pull out is that shame is, um, you know, the, the opposite thing of shame, what, what we're really afraid about shame. And, and that is being ostracized, That's being excluded from the group. Now, what we fear about creativity is if we do our art, we're going to get ostracized from the group, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, um, you know, a, a basic human fear, because we are pack animals, is being ostracized from the group. So if you dig long enough yeah. in people's fear trees, you're going to get, yes. I'm going to get shunned, right? This is going to come that direction yeah. um, based yeah. upon who we are. But I think, yeah. you know, as we've been talking about this relationship between grief and creativity, right, they're both... Um, really basically ask, they're both making meaning or, or related to the meaning that we have with certain things in the world or that we create in the world, right? So that's one mm -hmm. major component of it. And mm -hmm. the second piece of it is that um, at the very basic, you know, under that is we have lost something and the way that I feel about that is going to get me excluded from the group or, mm -hmm. I have created something and the way they feel about it is going to exclude me from the group. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, and so this is really fascinating as I think you sort of scratch around that. Um, Kara, I see you, I see you nodding though. What's coming up for you there. Yeah. I, I mean, I just think um, what you can see in this conversation is that um, grief and creativity are not just individual experiences. I mean, we're individuals having these experiences, mm. but we're mm -hmm. always um, in this kinship system is what Yulanov talks about in Madness and Creativity. We, we can't escape that kinship system <laughs> that we're in. We're, it's not mm -hmm. just this individual experience and individual meaning-making. It's got this surrounding um, uh, experience happening that the shape I talk in our class about how you know there's a range of hearing that humans have right a range of music that we range of notes we can hear but there's a whole bunch of notes outside of that range that shape what's happening to us and so I, I think mm -hmm. that's an interesting metaphor for what's happening for in our grief experiences and why I think creativity gives us a sense of agency to explore the choices we have, right? Beyond competition of, am I allowed to have this grief or not allowed to have this grief? You know, to move into more collaborative um, choice-making agency space. Um, I think creativity ha ha has the ability to take us there, um, to kind of intercede, you know, where grief and shame kind of go, <laughs> kind of stop you. I think creativity can go, oh, okay, wait a second. Let me look at this. What's happening? Um, what what choices am I not seeing right up front? Mm -hmm. what, what choices am I not seeing or what choices am I not creating? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, yeah. Go ahead, um, Kath. Yeah, because we're, we're not defining creativity as um, uh, simply making art or yes. crafts, although that, that um, is certainly something that we invite people to do all kinds of, using all kinds of different mediums, dance and song and um music and all sorts. Um, but the way we're defining creativity is it's the, it's whenever we're able to envision something else, um, something that isn't what we're faced with. So um, putting things together in new ways, um, envisioning new possibilities, um, making, the act of making. Anytime we're making something, we're being creative. Um, so creativity is a lot about problem solving as well. 
Absolutely. And this is where I, I know, Kath, we've had a lot of conversations around everyday creativity. And, mm-hmm. uh, th- you know, this is where, you know, cleaning out your garage and making it like <laughs> figuring out a new way to sort things and a new way to stack things. That's an incredibly creative mm-hmm. act, right? Yes. We wouldn't normally like you don't necessarily we're not talking about sort of that black beret creativity, like you're avant garde, no. you've got a little shawl on and you, you, you know, no. you, you smoke cigars and drink wine. Like that's not what we're th- <laughs> I mean, that's included in it. Right. But you know, if you have more mundane things of, you know, beautifying your home and your kitchen or rearranging yeah. things or making birdhouses or whatever that is, I think that's what we're talking about. Because um, I, I think in the, in the grief that I've experienced and that I've, that I've held space for with other people, um, you know, the whole thing about it is with a grief scenario, a lot of times something external to you has been taken from you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and creativity is so related to that because that's your act of creating like feeling intentionally feeling that hold that hole that's been taken with some agency right and so whatever you fill that hole with whether it's birdhouses or whether it's cleaning your garage or um you know whether it's gardening or painting on the sidewalk so kids walking down the street you know have a picture that they can see whatever that is like it's it's not the form it's the process. Yes. Yes. yes that's what I was going to add in there. Um, I'm so glad you highlighted that. It's, it's not about the end product. And, you know, sometimes uh, folks at the beginning of our class, our students are a bit concerned. Ah, I don't, I don't know how to paint nicely or um, I'm not an artist. I'm not a real artist and all that. And, and, you know, we, we have to help them understand that's not what we're here for. It's, it's not about the end product. It's really about the process of um, using your, yourself for thinking about new possibilities for imagining new things and for making it doesn't matter what you end up making i think just because we're human um a lot of us carry around unprocessed grief um Mm -hmm. and for all the reasons we've mentioned, it's, you know, the norms around talking about it. It's easier to stuff it down, not talk, talk about it, you know, get over it. You know, we think that some people think that grief is a linear sort of thing, like it's really intense and then it goes away and then you're good. And we, it does not work that way, right? If only. If only, if only like you can have this loss and you'll be like, you know what? I'm going to take a six day sabbatical. I'm going to go through it. I'm going to feel everything. And then uh, I'm Charlie, gonna you've only got of- three days. Charlie, yeah. sorry, you only have three days. Okay, so we only Paid have Paid leave for bereavement is three days. You can't do a six day sabbatical for your linear grief experience. Okay? <laughs> See, I, I haven't clear. had a job long enough, right? To, to not yeah. know if it's right. But, you've I been mean, self-employed for far too long. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, I have. Um, but I mean, it's kind of that thing where it's like, it's intense. I'm going to go on my grief healing journey and then it's done. Yeah. Book in. I'm good to go. Um, yeah. Not so much. Right. Yeah. Um, and so the reason I want to set that up is, you know, as we, we talked about a lot of things and I'm, I'm conscious of the time and I appreciate both of you sharing it with me. Um, I, I want to turn it over to you all to give an invitation for people who maybe they're going through grieving right now that they're conscious of, or maybe there's some of that unprocessed stuff that, you know, when they can go to Maui, that that's when they might pull it out, right? Or when, when it's some <laughs> better time, that's when they might pull it out. Um, what invitation do you have for people um, in that space? Hmm. 
I think for me, um, you know, one of the the creative pieces that came in my own practice and one of the things we continue to teach in the course is just how do you set up permission, permission for yourself to do what you need to do, right? So it's not there's some formula or some particular model, you know, I have to do this, but permission to set what you need to do what you need. Do you need sacred space? Do you need to get away? Do you need rest? You know, sometimes you just need a nap. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, how do you do that? I, I, and some of that is individual, but, uh, you know, also giving people permission to be aware that it's also more than just individual, you know, like Kath, what Kath was pointing out about bereavement leave being three days. There's a, uh, there's a, uh, socioeconomic reality there that a lot of people are in the middle of. So permission to really see those things, to really understand these different facets of what's happening, to give yourself permission to explore, to give yourself permission to um, uh, be creative in the ways you need to be creative. I think permission is is a huge thing um, in that whole um, process, not product kind of space. Mm -hmm. That's really what I invite people to is to really explore giving yourself permission. Um, I'm going to add something that's kind of a a, um, compliments what Kara has offered. So yes, totally um, permission to explore it and to explore it in your own way, as Kara says. And then also, um, you know, permission to not explore it because um, what I often get is a family member who uh, phones and says, you know, someone I love has had this terrible loss and I'm so worried about them. It happened two days ago and I think they're bottling their grief up um, or, you know, it happened a year ago and they've never cried. We've never seen them actually cry about it. Or And, and so um, there is a um, grief rule and, and it, well, there's an idea that's actually, I think, initially put out into the world by um um, the, the institutions of psychology, the professional uh, world, the idea that if you don't um, do grief work and the tasks and the <laughs> you know and get through your grief, mm-hmm. um, and and particularly if you don't do it fairly soon after the loss, um, and, and basically if you're not seen to be performing grief and certainly in the right ways, like talking and crying where people can actually see you do that, um, well, then uh, you might not be um, grieving in a healthy way and people become concerned and, and you know, whether like they're doing it out of love, but um, the, the big worry is that the grief is going to get worse if you are denying it and that denial is a pathology. It's certainly the professional world of grief psychology has put that out there, that denial is a pathology. Um, and and, and that then that denial is going to come and bite you in the back later. It's going to get worse and it's going to take you down. Um, and actually, um, you know, there's, there's a great book by um, Dr. George Bonanno called The Other Side of Sadness. And he's a grief researcher in the US. And um, and he has looked into that. And there is no research evidence for the idea that grief sticks around in its original form um, and grows <laughs> um, if you're not doing this, so, this thing that's called grief work and then um, sort of takes you down in the biggest way, you know, a little later. Um, and, and so um, permission to not explore it, you know. Um, if someone says to me they, they think they might be in denial about their grief, I'm like, Great. 
<laughs> Grief's horrible. <laughs> if you can do that, good for you. <laughs> if you can compartmentalize it, if you can even like feel like you forgot about it entirely, well, great. What's the problem? You know, um, <laughs> and mm-hmm. if it, if you find yourself having forgotten it for a long time, and you know. Um, uh, remembering it more recently and feeling a desire to explore it more recently, then, you, you know, fine, permission to explore if you're feeling that desire, but also permission to, to not. Um, <laughs> and permission to not ha- feel that you have to perform grief in the ways that, that other people are re- requiring you to. I think there's, um, uh, uh, there was a, we mentioned gender a little earlier in the conversation, and, and um, there certainly has been a strong genderization of grief um, with uh, the performance of grief, the, w- the way that, that we think grief should be performed being, um, well, it fits very well with um, how society scripts women. Like, you know, talking about feelings and crying is something that women have a lot of permission to do, even encouragement to do. Um, uh, men, on the other hand, not so. And um, and then, then, you know, even the research scales for measuring people's grief experience that are trying to say, well, how intensely do people grieve? And then they, they compare bereaved mothers and bereaved fathers, and they use these grief scales that are operationalized around a real, uh, around this, these concepts of performance of grief that are very, um, um, well, they fit very well with what women are expected to do. So it, it turns out then in, the, in their results, it looks like women are grieving much more intensely than men. And, um, uh, you know, there are much better uh, research designs that are, are being used in more recent grief literature um, that are, are doing a much better job of exploring people's um, experiences of grief and understanding that, they, hold on a minute, grief fathers grieve hard. They just don't, you know, cry out loud and want to attend um, grief support groups and, um, and and want to necessarily talk about their feelings. Um, and that's not necessarily... Um, uh, because their their grief experience is different, it's it's because of the strong sociocultural scripts that that men are subject to. So, as Kira says, permission to explore and to explore in your own way and to to um, uh, uh, perform your grief in your own way. Um, and and yes, you know, permission to also be in this thing called denial. You know, which you know maybe we could call it something else, like just like I'm okay, <laughs> resting. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I got other stuff to do. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I have to prioritize my children right now. I don't get to um, be under my bed um, crying. Like there's all of that. Like there's such a wide range of different ways that people make their way through life after loss. Um, and do what do what makes sense to you. Do what you got to do. I find it fascinating that in certain parts of our culture, like on one side of our mouth, we're we're like it's good in some ways to be detached from your emotions, right? It's good to be separate from your emotions, okay? And then mm-hmm. on the other side, speaking out of that cultural mouth, it's like no, you must process and feel this. <laughs> it's like okay (laughs) like which is it right why is it that i can be detached from my um you know from my jealousy i'm supposed to be detached from my jealousy but i'm supposed to feel my grief Hmm. yeah 
that's suspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but thanks for the invitation, right? Yeah. Uh, for, for both of those and invitations to not and invitations to. And I think what yeah. I'd want to say here, again, drawing the relationship between um, creativity and grieving. So there's not one mm-hmm. way to do it, yeah. right? There's yeah. no one size yeah. fits all. And that's the thing that you would want to take out and, you know, um, embrace that. You know, if, if you've gone mm-hmm. through something, well, I'll pause here real quick and say, um, recently my father was diagnosed with dementia. And so I needed to go down and take care of some things. Um, and then when I came back, it was one of those things. Kath probably knows this because we have talked about this, but I don't like talking about it because people are like, how do you really feel? And I'm like, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing my thing, right? <laughs> They're like, but no, how do you really feel? Like, tell them, like, reveal your sick. It's super intense. I feel cornered. Cornered yeah, is like, how I feel. <laughs> yeah, I feel super yeah. intense and awkward about that, right? Um, <laughs> and so, fight of you. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, I was feeling okay, but now I'm a little bit agitated, but yes. it's not about the thing, it's about your thing. Um, yes. And so, <laughs> Give yourself space, right? And and figure out your own language and your world to say, I'm good, right? I'm doing my yeah. thing. And if I need support, yeah. I will let you know, right? And I yeah. will so on and so forth. It's just so that you can claim that journey for yourself. Because again, it's like I said mm-hmm. with Kristen Mikos thing, it's like, not only do you have the thing that's that caused the grief, you got your mm-hmm. own way of processing that that comes. And then you have mm-hmm. other people's expectations about how you should process it. And then you have the shame mm-hmm. that follows that, right? And you're like, Ain't nobody got time for that, right? Um, (laughs) So it's so important, especially in families when you know when people live together or a big part of each other's lives. I think there there can be a tendency like we really care about each other, and you know, bereaved parents very often there's a sense of like I I want us to be grieving the same way because then I know that you care about you you are having the same experience as me, and I'm not alone. And um, that's very, very, very rarely the case. Um, you know, people experience their grief differently, and um, you know, have potentially had very different roles in um, in parenting in the first place, and and you know, then in the death of a child. Um, and and so it can feel like we're we're so distant. You don't understand me, and um, you you know. I, in order to be close to you, I need you to be having the same experience as me. Um, and, and so it's so important um, for couples and for, you know, parent, children, um, close friends, you know, for people to just recognize that people may be having very different experience, may just have very different ways of expressing themselves, um, different needs at that time. And, and how do we find ways to be close and, uh, and to feel that we can understand each other and we're in this together, even if we are using different language to talk about it, wanting to do different things and uh, generally just making different meaning of, of our grief and loss. Okay, Creative Giant. So you heard it from Kara and Kath. Um, What permission do you need to give yourself to feel or not feel your grief? And remember, these two things, grief and creativity, are tied so much together. To give yourself permission to grieve or not grieve is probably giving yourself permission to create in whatever way is most relevant and resonant for you. Until next time, stand tall. If you're digging the Creative Giant Show, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a rating or review on iTunes. If you're not familiar with how to do this, there's a walkthrough available on the podcast page on ProductiveFlourishing.com. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. 
to find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.